Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we discuss our emotional reaction to typography. We interview a legendary French designer on her partnership with film magazine Carriers du Cinéma. Plus, Guillaume Pascal on his Boys, Boys, Boys project on queer and gay photography. And finally, filmmaker and writer Chachi D. Hauser on her delightful part memoir, It's Fun to Be a Person I Don't Know. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking to designer Marie Boulanger at Monotype, talking to us about a very interesting research project about how we connect emotionally with typography, and also the geographical differences between the UK and France. The project was made in collaboration with a neuroscientist. Let's hear more from Marie. So my name is Marie. I currently work for Monotype as a brand designer, so kind of owning the brand's visual voice. And I'm also doing a project there specifically about research, kind of exploring the neuroscience of fonts and emotion. This is very interesting because a lot of people analyze, you know, color, branding, a lot of aspects when it comes to trust and, and brands, but not so much with fonts. And I think that's the study which I find it so interesting. Tell us a bit more about that. That was exactly the starting point, actually. There's been so much effort and resource invested into things like colour, and we now have scientific backup for how colour makes us feel and how it ties into branding, but that didn't really exist with typefaces. And, you know, being monotype, we kind of felt like it was our almost our responsibility to explore it and, you know, be as open as we could be with the findings, sharing what we found with the world, sharing our journey as well. And it's been incredible so far. <laughs> How did this study work out? And actually, please explain to us, because then I would like to talk about the geographical differences, because I know you did this in the UK and in France, which is super interesting. But first, how did the study here in the UK work out? Of course. So the way that we established our research project was, first of all, we had to find a partner, a scientific partner, to actually carry out the experiments. And we worked with a firm called Neurons. So they do all kinds of applied neuroscience. They're based in Copenhagen. And they agreed to run some tests with us. And the way that it worked was a self-reported test. So it wasn't anything like with hard wires on people's brains or anything like that, but who knows, that might come soon. So it wasn't done in a lab. It was showing stimuli to people on screens and in different typefaces in a very kind of isolated setting. So just the type with a word, with a sentence and with kind of fake ad campaigns. And then you ask people, like, do you feel trust when you see this font? Or what were the feelings that you that they've been asked when they saw those images and this, those fonts? Also a great question, and it kind of ties into the background for this project. So we kind of constructed the first study based on our own experience of crafting custom type for brands. And we basically picked the top three values that brands ask us for all the time. And those three were trust, innovation, and quality. 
that's kind of like if you think about all of the rebrands that we've done, the custom typefaces that we've drawn for people, that was kind of what came out on top. So that's basically the stimuli that we used to test the typefaces. And we crafted, I want to call them almost cliches, like, you know, archetypes of a certain brand value, a certain word and a certain typeface. And that's what we tested asking exactly that. So asking questions like, is this trustworthy? Is this honest? Does this stand out from the competition? Like questions both tied to emotional response and behavioral as well. You know, if you're thinking about brands, you want to ask people about how it affects them. And can you tell us maybe some of the fonts that people are actually really warmed up to? How many fonts did you actually use in the study? I, I presume not all of them, but, you know, just so you have an idea. <laughs> so the archetypes that I mentioned, we also tied a typeface to each one. So we picked three. Mm-hmm. Three to go with kind of each main value and each sort of type of fake brand that we were testing. So three different typefaces, all quite different one geometric sans serif, one humanist sans serif, and a really nice kind of heavy contrast serif typeface. I saw there was one called Gilroy, right? Yes. <laughs> I felt a lot of trust on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wouldn't be the only one. <laughs> See? <laughs> and, and this is quite interesting for brands as well, because I think people, as you said, they are some of the time emotionally attached to those phones, because I feel that some magazines, brands, I mean, not just magazines, when they do a rebrand, they have to be very careful as well, because they don't want to lose kind of their main customer as well. Of course, they need to attract new people. But do you you think brands should be very careful when there is a rebrand or a redesign? Because sometimes I feel that even with magazines, sometimes it's too different from what it used to be. So I think they have to be, I don't know, you tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm desperately trying to find those answers right now. But I think what's interesting with this research and where it's leading us is that You know, the way that we have classified and used typefaces in the past was very, very much based on form. You know, even the way that I described those typefaces to you was using, you know, kind of classification based on what they look like. And I feel like this could open up something slightly different where we chase, you know, a more, I I mean, I don't want to use the word emotional, but a more personal, a more human way of looking at type and how it makes us feel and you know we'll get into a bit of detail later on about um, the cultural implications and how we can't quite pick the exact same thing for everyone or so it seems but I feel like that's where I see this going you know maybe potentially helping much like Kuna you know the same thing has happened with Kuna I feel like that research has really infiltrated the main, you know, mainstream design and the way that we speak about color, even when you speak to, you know, agencies with clients, like they'll say something like, this will make you feel this or this will evoke feelings of calm or why not that with fonts? Absolutely. Well, let's go through some of the geographical differences because then the study was made in France last year, right? I'm very curious to hear <laughs> the differences. And I think especially with you, you're very interesting. I believe you're a French national, right? But you, yes. you have, you've been living here in the UK for many, many years. So I think it would be extra interesting for you as well. Pretty much instantly when we ran the first study, which was UK-based, we knew that we would have some kind of variation where we would test out different markets, different localizations and we had to pick something you know we also could have done different ages different occupations all kinds of ways of segmenting it but we went into the geography 
as our first adventure. And the French results, I was, again, like I was really expecting them to be different because having studied linguistics, being mm. French, I was sure that there would be some kind of difference. I was not expecting them to be that different. It was really quite shocking in a really cool way. I love that. So they felt, from what I see in the study, they felt even more emotional than the Brits on that topic, right? Yeah, I think that's my favorite takeaway from the French mm. study. I feel like something we can definitely say is that the absolute values were much higher and much lower for France. So the lows were lower, the highs were higher. And yeah, we got some really strong reactions to certain typefaces with certain emotions. It was so cool to see. The French results surprised me because they didn't quite match the stereotypes that we had built for the UK study. There was more variation. However, I will say that I think, this is purely hypothesis, mm -hmm. <laughs> that there must be some kind of, I guess, a cultural, almost, you know, subconscious thing that kind of shapes your perception of typefaces. And I I think we can say with, you know, a good amount of confidence that every country's typographic history is very different. And, you know, France has a very rich history of printing, of making type. You know, it really depends on countries. But if you walk in the streets of any French city, there's a lot of presence of type. So I'm sure that it must shape people's perception in some way. And, you know, we've seen that it was very different to the UK and Spoiler alert, this is coming out soon, but I think I can say it because we've teased it on social media. We've done the test in Japan. Amazing. And that is crazy. No one is ready. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marie. And for more on the project, go to monotype.com slash neurons. We move on now to a very special interview with legendary French designer Agnes B. Agnes always had a close relationship with the film industry and this year in Cannes had a special pop-up space called Chez Agnes, hosted on the ground floor of the famous Malmaison by the Quinzaine de Cineaste, supported for a long time by Agnes B. Also for this year's Cannes, she designed a t-shirt designed specially for the festival with the Carriers du Cinéma magazine, paying tribute to the cover that the magazine dedicated to Jean-Luc Godard last October after his death. Let's hear more about this collaboration with Agnes. I love cinema, it's true, you know, and I even did a film. I did a movie 10 years ago, which was in a Venice festival. It's a long movie, so it's a feature movie. I would love to see yeah. it, actually. I would love to yes. see it. What about the T-shirt you've done with Carriers du Cinéma, which is such an iconic publication in France? Tell us about this idea. I mean, the, the T-shirt also looks Because, beautiful. You know, in, in, in 86, at Galerie du Jour, I did a show in homage to Godard, which was so inspiring for my generation, and I love Godard until he was dead. And uh, So I did a poster, which maybe you know, with many black and white photos from films from Godard and some colors too. So I took all the, they let me, take all what I wanted. I did copies of the photographs and I sent, gave them back to Cinema. That was in 86. So you see, we had a long relationship with du Cinema. I learned how to love cinema. I've been reading often Cahiers. So it's a, it's a great reference anyway in France. 
les cahiers. And what about, I mean, these collaborations, for example, there is this newer one with Café du Cycliste and with the magazine Carriers du Cinema. Are they brands that you really feel passionate about it? Because I think you, I mean, you, you, you have this vision of the brands you want to collaborate with. But you know, I'm a stylist and when you are a stylist, you can stylize many things, even your life with the people you meet and with the people you wish to meet and you happen to meet finally like with Basquiat or many, many great artists. I, I love La Rachita, musician, and many French musicians. And it's my work to open my eyes, and I am very greedy about seeing things, new things, new ways to think. Yes. And we, we, we spoke about the Cahiers du Cinema collaboration, and now you have a recent one with a Café du Cycliste. Can you tell us a bit more about that one? Because uh, it's a very nice cafe in Nice, and they like very much my design. We have a nice two shops in Nice, and they are on the old um, port, on the quay, and uh, we like their spirit, and the, as it came from them. I didn't ask. They asked me to do a collaboration. That's fantastic, actually, because they, tr they trust the brand. Yes, we had a lot of people in Paris because we did that the day before London. So in Paris, it was very successful. A lot of people came and it was nice, very nice. Amazing. Yes. And will you plan to do more collaborations, not only with Café du Cycliste, but even with Carriers du Cinéma, with oh, no, other we covers do, we perhaps? Do Kawe, we do Kawe collaboration, and we have other projects. I don't know if I can speak about it yet, but... Uh, Kawe, you know the rain jacket with the zip. Kawe, oh, yes. I just did a collaboration with him. Merci, Agnes. And for more, go to agnesb.eu. And now, a pleasure to welcome back to the stack, Guille Pascal, to tell us about the latest book from the Boys, Boys, Boys project. Boys, Boys, Boys is indeed a project by the Little Black Gallery and started in 2018 to promote queer and gay fine art photography. It now represents more than 60 photographers from 30 countries, including China, India, Iran, Poland and Russia, where gay rights are repressed and queer lives under constant threat. Boys, Boys, Boys includes exhibitions, books, a biannual magazine, photography courses and more. Let's hear from Gile. So the Little Black Gallery is my gallery, which is a photography gallery specializing in contemporary photography. And that's been going since 2008. And we had a physical space here in London in Chelsea for 10 years. And then in 2018, I decided to move to France. So I live in France and my business partner and my assistant I left behind in London. And part of one of the programs that we started is a program called Boys, 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 which promotes queer and gay photography which started about three or four years ago. And now we represent 65 photographers from 30 countries. So it's something that's growing. It's something that's big. And as part of the program, we publish a biannual magazine, which is what we spoke about last time when you had me on. I think it was volume one, actually, when we mm. first launched it, which we launched during lockdown. And then this is our new book, which is actually our third book, which is published by Kera Verlag. 
Well, before we talk about the book itself, one thing I find interesting, as you said, you have 65 photographers, and they come from all sorts of countries, even countries that are not known for their gay rights. Uh, quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, I think that's quite an interesting... Uh, what do you think about that? What do you think well, when I, you approach then with that? I'm particularly proud of the fact that we represent photographers from countries such as that where it's difficult to be gay. So we have a photographer in Iran, we have a Palestinian photographer, we have an indigenous photographer from Peru, we have photographers from Russia, from China. It's diverse. I get far more excited when a new photographer comes along who's from some country that it's hard, because one of the things I want the platform to do is give these people an opportunity. So they have no platform. And I'm not saying it's easy for queer and gay photographers in Europe and America, because it's not. I mean, there is no outlet for queer and gay photography in mainstream art. That's the sad reality. So we are trying to fill that void, but it's it's not easy. Definitely not easy. And again, we're talking about countries with no gay rights. Another thing, I mean, maybe we would agree with me on that, but in this social media age, I think... For some reason, even in countries like the UK or France, whatever, people are becoming more conservative about nudity as well. So I think that's interesting. You have a, a physical project. I know you're on social media as well, but you have to be quite careful as well about what images you put there, right? No, I'm 100% with you, Fernando. Mm. I think I think the West is going back to the 1950s. Mm. It's becoming super conservative, particularly in terms of of gay imagery. Mm. I don't think it's the same in terms of female imagery. I think it's it's very very conservative. And social media, as we all know, you can't post anything on. So actually, it's becoming less and less of a platform for art, for the freedom of art. And one of the reasons we, we started the books and the magazines is actually to have a, an outlet for the images, because there is no mainstream media that publishes anything that we do. I mean, you're the only mainstream radio station that's ever interviewed us. There's no mainstream media that's ever published a story about boys, boys, boys. So we have to be creative in trying to get the message out. And what's exciting for me is the fact that, like, the magazines, we're now on our, we will be doing our sixth issue in June, and every issue we print more. And it's like, wow. And I never expected to be a publisher. And we're now in Waterstones in the UK. We're in Barnes & Noble in America. It's growing and growing and growing. And the book's the same. This is our third one. This is with a new publisher. And I'm sure it will sell out in a, in a flash. I know that's a funny one. I said it could be controversial. But this is the third iteration of the book. But there's no numbers here. It doesn't say boys, boys, boys. Three or volume three. Why is that? Well, I don't like putting volume numbers on books because <laughs> it, it people then say, well, I haven't got a volume two and volume one, so I'm not going to buy it. The publisher was keen for us to put the, the volume number on it, but there is a kind of thing in the industry that if you put a volume number on it, then the bookshops buy less because they don't have the other copies, but that doesn't seem to be the way it goes. We want people to collect them. I mean, the magazines have the volume numbers on them because we want people to collect them. So you should have six magazines in this in the colour of the rainbow at home. So, yeah. Two different ideas, right? So yeah, either with the volume yeah, or exactly. without. With you know? or without. Uh, I prefer without for the book. I think it looks very good. And what about when you look at the work of those photographers? What are you searching for for the Boys, Boys, Boys brand? Is it originality or just pure beauty or do you have certain standards or do you like perhaps a variety a different variety? yeah well, i think it has to be a variety yeah. otherwise it'd be very boring mm. and i think as i said to you last time we spoke is i always look you know it's fine art photography i'm, mm. a, I'm a gallerist so my aim is to try and sell the images as art so whenever i'm curating i'm looking through the the prism of fine art photography and, you know, and if all the photographers were the same it'd be very boring and to be honest they're not it's all very diverse but 
and again, I think I've said this before, it seems to be my mantra, less dick is good for me because mm. we don't want to be perceived as, you know, some kind of gay porn or it's too easy to go down that rabbit hole. Then people just mm. go, oh, it's just it's just naked boys. And yes, there are lots of naked boys in it, but I'm always looking at it very carefully in terms of of art. And also when I look at the artists, I don't just look at one of their images. I look at their entire catalogue, where they fit in. I mean, the problem I have probably most of all is one, too many dick pics in my inbox. So they just go in the bin. And the second one, we get lots of images sent in by fashion photographers. And that's the one I find hardest because obviously some of the fashion photographers are incredible. But I don't think you can call it fine art photography yet. There's something about fashion photography that actually there needs to be a bit of time before it then can become art. I think if it's a media and you just shot, you know, say you just shot a story for Vogue it can't then immediately be seen as art. It's normally kind of like 20, 30 years, and then suddenly you can look at those images and, okay, that kind of captured a, a, a point in time, and then it may be considered art. Well, it is art. I mean, I'm just flicking through while talking to you as well. For example, this image, I mean, I stopped here accidentally by Gerardo Vismano's Evening. I mean, what a beautiful, uh, quite poetic. It's a man... He's naked, I believe, in the river or something. I yeah, don't that's shot in Germany. Well, yeah, Gerardo, he's a really interesting Incredible. character. He's a Spanish photographer mm. who trained as a lawyer. He was a lawyer before he became a photographer. Mm. And now he's dedicated his life to fine art photography. And I actually saw him last week in Berlin when we launched the book. Amazing. And this photographs that I'm, I'm, I'm looking here at the book... If someone, so let's say, for example, this image of Gerardo, can I talk to you and say, I would like to buy a print yeah. of that? Every, is, is that how every it works? single picture in the book is available as That's a piece funny. of art on our website, boysboysboys.org. That is, I mean, I call it, it's our catalogue. The book is our catalogue. Every single image is available to buy. And that's what we're trying to encourage people to do. That's what the program's designed for. But there is still this slight stigma about, you know, people buying queer and gay photography which i find in 2023 bizarre i mean i collect photography and you know you don't just have to collect queer and gay photography it can be everything but queer and gay people still seem to be reserved about buying it as art i don't know why because it's not expensive i mean it's expensive in the sense that it's not you know it's not 200 pounds but in terms of the art market it, it's it's reasonable but yep. we'll get there we'll get there it's 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 a long program and it's going to take time and you know we're growing and growing thank you very much Gillian for more info go to boysboysboys.org And finally, on the show, I had a great chat with Chachi D. Hauser, filmmaker and writer. She just published It's Fun to Be a Person I Don't Know, which at first glance might be mistaken for a juicy Hollywood tell-all, given her background as the great-granddaughter of Roy Disney, a co-founder with his brother Walt of the Walt Disney Company. Hauser's innovative and multifaceted narrative navigates a variety of terrains. She tells us more about the book. I guess I've taken a lot from my filmmaking experience into my writing life, especially because I write what is sort of called nonfiction. And I sort of like, I think I, I've always done that without really thinking consciously of it. But in the process of writing this book, I was also producing two films and one was like in the editing process. So I think since I was so closely linked to that process, I was thinking about like, what if I thought of the writing as a documentary edit where you have, you know, 500 hours of footage sometimes. And the the first 
process the editor does is watch all of that footage and pick out pieces that are related to the theme of what kind of story they want to tell. And slowly through watching again and again, they sort of like place the things together to make a meaning. I just think that's like an interesting approach to narrative. Instead of telling a story that has these like beats, it's it's more like finding the connections and then later creating the dramatic arc through those thematic connections and like layering. And also I have to say, of course, the book is a memoir, but it's, it's quite poetic as well. There's quite a lot of poetry, kind of, you know, dreamy at times as well. I mean, was that your intention when you wrote? It's not, I would say, your typical memoir as well, because even you say, I think the names are withhold as well. Uh, tell us a bit more about that as well. Yeah, I guess when I when I was writing this, I well, I started off just writing like separate essays. And then later, as I like was putting the essays together, I realized that that they could kind of build up and form a book. And during, I guess, like, yeah, I never intended to write a memoir. I mean, I'm I'm 32. I I have a lot more to live. <laughs> um, so it it's always like was more I approached it as a, a book. I've liked now like living here in, in France and noticing how they approach genre. I think that there's like sort of more of a looseness around what is a, considered a memoir or book. Like they kind of are just like, sometimes it's a book. You don't have to think too much about whether or not it happened, but just appreciate the writing as, as it is which I, I like. <laughs> well, it, it makes you quite free. And funnily enough, this is also one of the topics of the book because, you know, it does talk about gender, sexuality as well in a fluid way. So perhaps even the genre doesn't need to be something so strict. <laughs> this is my memoir. This is me as a kid. And you know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. And tell us about, of course, people know about your connection with Disney. You're the great granddaughter of Roy Disney as well. Tell us how being part of the family actually kind of influenced your life in a way because it's very interesting how when you mentioned Disney especially from the environmental perspective as well which which we'll discuss a bit later too. I guess I mean in a literal way it was part of my life because we we would go to Disney World a lot we would go at least once a year sometimes more sometimes just as a family for fun because we got in for free and got to skip the lines so <laughs> you know, as a kid that's I didn't realize how unique that experience of this place was, which I talk about a bit in the book. Um, and we also would go to premieres and openings and things with my grandparents. Sometimes like as sort of his, like, I feel like they like to have kids around him. So we were sort of there for the the pictures and it was very exciting, but still it was sort of, it was like this world I got to drop into for a little moment of these kind of strange, surreal things like that. But then my family lived in New York. So we kind of had this other world we went back to, whereas like all my cousins and aunts and uncles lived in LA still. And so they were sort of more surrounded by it because Disney's just everywhere in the culture there. And I think there's also like more of an obsession with fame in LA. So. I've always was thankful that my mom kind of brought us to the other coast where we could kind of not necessarily hide, but at least have the option to not that be like the front facing part of our personality. 
Tell us about your connection with New Orleans because, you know, it's very much present in the book. And I know sometimes you do go there, right? You're kind of partially based there as well. Yeah. So I, I moved there like, uh, well, now almost 10 years ago, um, right after I graduated from college for my undergrad. And I'd been there just once before for a, a Mardi Gras for like, I just drove with a bunch of friends on a road trip and had this amazing time over the course of, I think, only three days that felt like this a lifetime. And it's a really special city. I think there's nowhere like it in the world, but particularly in the U.S. It feels like a U.S. city that's not really American. <laughs> have you have you ever been there? No, but I never been, but I would love to go because I hear so many amazing things about the food, the culture, even the way it looks. I mean, it is quite unique, as, as, as you rightly yeah. said. And I think there's a lot of mention in the book about the nature itself, right? The rivers, the, the swamp, the kind of, I think this is was quite present as well. And you tell us a little bit of a history of it in the book, right? Yeah. And that's for me, like uh, among the many other things, like the the music and, and the culture there, there's also this feeling that you can't convince yourself that like humans really can, can control nature and that nature will quietly sit by and let that happen. It's It's always coming through like, all of the sidewalks are cracked open and there's, you know, the swamp trying to grow out and there's the hurricanes that threaten the city every each year. It's just like so alive. And I mean, it's in ways that are terrifying, but it also in ways that are, I find inspiring because it's it doesn't let us continue on in this contemporary way of, of existing within nature where we think we can control it and and that's the end of it. Um, and we can extract all of the things that got us into this bad situation uh, with our environment in the first place. So I like being reminded of, of nature's power. <laughs> and that's recurrent from your other projects as well, from your films as well. And of course, it was influenced, it was mentioned in the book a lot uh, too. Is, is, is that, I mean, are, are you working, because I know you work, are you working in several projects. I mean, I wonder if you can tell us about some of them, especially when it comes to the world of film. Sure, yeah. The, the one that you're probably mentioning is Hollow Tree that recently came out. It's been doing the uh, festival circuit this past year. And it like highly influenced the this book, at least how I talk about the environment in New Orleans, because through the process of researching and also filming for it, I traveled with the director all over Louisiana and met people and talked to them about what they noticed in their environments and how those environments had changed over time. You know, communities on the coast who have seen because of like a combination of things because of the river being levied and no longer being able to deposit sediment in that part of the state. And as well as like dredging of oil canals, the land is just disappearing there. And so in the lifetime of Mackenzie, who is one of the young women we filmed with, she's seen the land just, it's gone. Like the places that she used to like go fishing as a kid look completely different that film is a sort of learning journey of these three young women who are growing up in Louisiana and learning about how their environments have been managed and controlled and how that mindset has affected not only the way we relate to our environment, but many things in our culture and trying to think of like a new way to approach nature. And if we can, you know, like address that, that colonialist and extractive mindset affected not only like the way we treated 
the environment, but also other human beings that we can see it sort of like as something that touches everything. Thank you, Chachi. And it's fun to be a person I don't know is out now. And that's it for this week's show. And my thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fp at monaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And before we go, a little song for you. It has to be Sabrina. Boys, boys, boys. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Thank you.